0: and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We're joined today by Will Latham, president of Latham Consulting Group. Will's here to talk about developing a strategic plan for your medical group. Will, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Now, tell us a little bit about your background and career path in healthcare and how it led to this long-term strategic planning. Okay. I, uh, I
1: started working with medical groups a little over 30 years ago, back in 1988. Uh, before that, I worked for a, one of the big accounting firms for a few years, and then went to work with a regional bank and an internal consulting department. They allowed me to work outside of the bank, and I'd help the bank with a lot of areas doing planning. Someone gave my name to a medical group and they asked me to come in and facilitate a planning retreat for them. So I did that, enjoyed it. They gave my name to Somebody else, and gave my name to Somebody else, and it just kind of took off from there. So back in 1988, started working full time, almost exclusively with medical groups. And today, most of my focus is helping groups in three main areas. About 60% of my time is working with groups developing strategic plans for their group, what we're going to talk about today. About 20% of my time each year is helping groups with mergers. Sometimes it's more than that, but uh, I do a good bit of work helping facilitate merger processes. And then lastly, the rest of my time, I help groups that are, have reached a certain point where they need some help in restructuring their governance, how they make decisions, how they work together. And so I spend time with the groups helping uh, helping them with those sort of things.
0: Okay. Now, you've used an interesting term in past presentations uh, when describing medical practices, the word chaos. And I have to ask you, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think any medical group manager knows
0: that they they work
1: with a bunch of physicians that are supposed to be working together, but each one of them individually has their own ideas about the direction of the practice. And so if they never come together and reach a, a pretty unified decision on how they're going to move forward, it becomes chaos. No no one knows what really should be done. People don't know how to focus resources on different type of projects. There's disagreement, there's just, and, and a lot of times there's standstill, because in many cases the manager of the group doesn't quite know what to implement, and therefore if they implement something that isn't in line with an individual doctor's mind or a, a few doctors, that can be sort of a career-limiting move. So. From my perspective, the the chaos comes from the fact that they they haven't taken a day a year or a couple of days to a year to sit down together and say, what is it that we want to accomplish together? What key initiatives do we want to go after? What's our plan for the organization?
0: Yeah, so let's dig a little bit deeper into that. what is your opinion then about the present state of independent practices because there is so much change going on that, whether it's regulatory or just issues within healthcare so what's going on out there Well you know I mean
1: there are lots of changes one of the
0: biggest areas of change over the last few years
1: has to do with the consolidation of, of all of healthcare hospitals are merging health plans are merging and there's been a you know a huge flux of Medical practices merging into hospital systems or being acquired by private equity. And at one point in time, a lot of people began to feel like that—that's the direction that there weren't going to be independent practices out there; they'd all be owned. In fact, if you go back into the 1990s, there was a prediction at one point that there'd be, at the end of the day, there'd be five big medical corp- healthcare corporations, and they'd own all hospitals and employ all physicians. Well, of course, that didn't happen. And I actually think now we're, going to, we're seeing a bit of a turnaround in terms of more independent practices. It, there's been some changes in reimbursement that don't make it so economically advantageous for hospitals to own physician practices. And so in many parts of the country, that has slowed down a good bit. Some of the private equity acquisition of groups hasn't worked out the way that either the people acquired thought it would work out or the investors thought it would work out. So I actually see, I mean unless there's some sort of enormous change on healthcare reimbursement, for example going to a single payer plan or something like that, I actually see independent practice being very vibrant and in fact growing, As especially as hospitals begin looking at whether or not they want to retain physician practices as employees.
0: Your specialty is in long-range strategic plans, but that kind of goes against uh, the day-to-day operations because, as you were saying, there is so much chaos out of medical practice. There's so much focus on daily productivity. Um, How do you kind of get the mindset changed so people can develop a long-range strategic plan and, and make that work for them?
1: Well, part of it is actually setting aside time to sit down and discuss a little bit longer range thoughts than typically happens in the monthly meetings. Usually, you know, groups either have a monthly meeting of all the physicians or their their leadership group gets together. And there's just there's just so many things to focus on on the day-to-day issue that any thoughts about what might happen next month, next year, five years from now Uh, they did there's just not time to to spend focusing on that because they're just trying to put out fires in today's situation an an unfortunate problem of that is is because many groups have no long-range plan they don't they can't put today's problems in context they're just kind of making decisions willy-nilly and not focusing on does this lead us to where we said we wanted to go as a group so part of it is pulling aside and carving out time, and many groups do that through a retreat, a weekend retreat, par- carving out time to come together with a specific focus of, let's talk a little bit longer about where we want to go. Now, when, when I'm thinking about long-range planning, I'm not talking about, typically, about a 10-year plan or a 20-year plan. Some people would like that. But in today's healthcare environment, that's just not realistic. I, I, you're looking really at more... What, what is the group going to do over the next several years, two or three years? Because there's so much, there has been so much change, so much potential change, that to, to look beyond, at the most five years, but to look beyond a certain point in time is unrealistic in the planning process. So I try to, to get groups to kind of focus on what is it you want to accomplish over the next one year, the next three years, the next five years, recognizing that the further you go out, the more the environment might change, the more the situation might change, and you know, you'll know you have to adapt and adjust your plan. And that's one other factor that I think people need to keep in mind, which is when you make a plan, it's not etched in stone. It's not, you know, we do it no matter what happens. You know, you, you do have to get back together at periodic points and sort of revisit the plan and say, are we still on track? But if you have no plan, if you don't know what you're going to do for recruitment, if you don't know what you're going to do for expansion, if you don't know what you're going to do for building facilities, you know, staffing, administration, if you don't have any idea of where you want to go in that regard, once again, I I find many groups to be paralyzed and they don't do anything. They just sort of, they sort of say to themselves, let's wait six months and then everything will be clear. And of course, in my experience, six months goes by all the time. And things weren't that clear. So many times it's really you just have to make the plan and make make the future come true as opposed to waiting for the future to tell you what you should be.
0: What are the steps then that you would suggest a practice takes so they can actually apply this, put it to work for them? Okay. So usually it's it's bringing together the
1: physicians in the practice who are either the shareholders or the decision makers. Now in some groups, that's everybody, it's all physicians. Let's bring everybody together for a planning process. In other situations, uh, you know, if you've got a very large group, many times there's sort of a two-step process where a certain leadership team comes, to get, comes together and develops a plan and then they, they present that to the larger group to get feedback. But it typically all revolves around a retreat where the group leaders uh, or all members of the group come together and spend a day to a day and a half to two days, depending on how much time they'll give to the process and what issues need to be covered, and they spend time talking about the future and discussing the key issues that they need to, uh, you know, to make decisions on. They, if they have never established a sort of a mission statement and vision statement for the group, they might do that. They might need to talk about what's, you know, how they plan to grow, what their geographic coverage might be. They might need to talk about uh, what they need to do from a technology perspective and development, what their recruitment plan is going to be, how they're going to deal with retirements. Every group has its own set of issues that it needs to work on and wrestle with. So, so, so I guess the main concept there is it's a, it's a retreat. It's usually on a weekend day because people don't like to close down the offices to be able to do it. Uh, and you're trying to focus on key issues. Now at that time, is the most valuable time because if you have everybody there and if you, know, if, you, if you multiply an hourly rate for everybody and you multiply that by eight hours or whatever time you're going to meet, it, it turns into a pretty big number. And so it's a very valuable time uh, you know, because people are together and willing to talk. So to make best use of that, most groups have a process that they do up front, which is they gather information either through interviews or surveys about what the group thinks is important for the group and at this time and what needs to be discussed. And usually when we do that type of work, people are interviewed, but sometimes we, we do survey people. And usually we ask the people, the, the participants, what do they see are the main strengths of the group? What do they see are the main weaknesses? What are the opportunities and what are the threats? Most of you probably at one time or another heard about a SWOT analysis. And the reason you ask those things is typically the planning retreat is about how to, how to fix some of the weaknesses. It's about what opportunities to pursue. It's what do you need to do to avoid the threats that are identified? And how do you use your strengths to be able to do those sort of things? So that's why you're asking those questions. So part of the, the pre-retreat work is to ask those questions. What do you see are the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities and threats? And then we ask the physicians what they feel like are the important issues that need to be discussed at the retreat, and from that, you put together an agenda to, to line up what issue will be discussed in what order and gather whatever supporting data is necessary for supporting that discussion. For example, if you're looking at a new ancillary service and that would be a subject of discussion at the retreat, you might want to have a cost-benefit analysis done. To be able to present that at the meeting itself or if you're looking at adding new staffing you might need to do some research on salaries and cost and what once again what the benefits are there but the whole goal is to have it all lined up before the meeting so that you don't use the meeting creating the agenda you use the meeting to discuss the issues uh, during the meeting itself and then subsequent to the meeting to the retreat We we always suggest that a report is developed which outlines what decisions were were, were made at the retreat itself. And the reason for that is is several things. One is is sometimes not everybody can be at the meeting. So it's a way to communicate what was discussed and what decisions were made. And the other is, is that it makes sense from our perspective that maybe once a quarter, you pull that report back out again and say, how are we doing versus what we planned? Are we on track? There may be good reasons that you're not. There may be good reasons that you changed something you thought you were going to do. But it's just a way to remind yourself that this is what we set for goals and objectives for ourselves. These are the plans that we put in place. Are we actually following through on those plans? And, and the groups that I know of that do that find that they're the ones that do retreats year after year or every other year because they see that the result of the retreat turned into actual actions that they took to move themselves forward.
0: Mm-hmm. In case any of our listeners want to adopt this model of the retreats, who are the stakeholders in the, in these retreats? Who, uh, attends them? Uh, how often do you have them? And, uh, are there any final objectives or goals that you try to have? And, and, and finally, what, what's the flow like? I, I know that, uh, the, the pop culture example is people are out in the woods with trust falls and all that in between the actual strategy part. But is there some fun or entertainment that mixes in with the meetings or is it all business? What what does that look like? Okay. So from a participant
1: standpoint, typically it's the shareholders in the group and the administrator or the CEO of the group attend. Definitely. They, They all need to be there. Then, in some cases, or for at least part of the meeting, sometimes the shareholder track physicians will be invited, but quite often there's a section where they may not be a, a part of the discussion because they're not shareholders yet and are not privy to maybe some financial issues that need to be discussed for the practice itself, or even evaluations of them and their performance. I typically suggest that you try to limit the attendees to those people, unless there's a topic that needs to be discussed that involves... Say your accounting firm or an attorney or some vendor that needs to come in and talk about something specific, and the reason for that is, is that in these in these meetings you want people to be as open as they can in terms of discussion, and and the more people that attend, the more concerned the physicians get about how confidential they'll keep the information that's discussed, or they actually begin to sort of. Do things in response to the people that are there. So, to me, you want to keep it down to uh, you want to keep it down to as as few people as possible in the meeting room. You don't want a bunch of observers sitting around the room. In addition to that, you want to make sure that when uh, of your physician attendees, you know there are in almost every group there are some people that are very pro group and maybe some people that aren't so pro group. There there may be some people that tend to be a little disruptive in meetings or sort of the naysayers or the, the, the loyal opposition. And and there is sort of a tendency sometimes to people to say, let's plan the meetings when they're on vacation or out of town. But I don't think that that, that shouldn't be done at all. The reason being is that you want people to come together and have input into the process, because that actually, at the end of the day, gets them to be more supportive of the decisions. Even if it doesn't go exactly the the way they want it, they had their chance to come and make their points and then listen to the others. And then hopefully the group will vote on which initiatives they want to move forward with, and which ones they don't want to move forward with. Now, some groups do plan, say, a weekend retreat, and they include some social time uh, with each other. It's quite often hard to get Physicians to leave town and, and and go to retreat. Some groups do, and some groups don't. The ones that don't, you know, they, they they want to be away from their families. They give up enough time and weekends on call and those sort of things. And then, so they want to keep it in town and focus fully on on business efforts. Other groups use it as a way to to do more in a way team building. Now, I, you know, our firm doesn't do formal team building exercises like. Trust falls or rope courses. Part of the reason for that is, is, is whenever that's mentioned, we typically get a very negative feedback on doctors wanting to do that. And so, over the years, I've just not included those kind of processes uh, uh, in in the in the meetings themselves. We do work sort of on team building, though, you know, by getting people to talk about shared interests and getting them to talk about what they want to do to cut together and collectively. And many times that inc- improves the bond between the physicians working together within the organization itself. But once again, in our retreats, rarely are there are there specific direct team-building type activities. The groups that do social activities a part of it. A lot of times they'll stay over the weekend. They'll have a dinner together. Sometimes they... They golf together or, or do, do other type of activities that a lot of them do, do together. It just, just as a way to spend time talking with each other about issues that aren't as ripe with conflict as the planning meetings are. You know, when you're in the planning meetings, you're talking about business, administration, decisions, and those issues are ripe for conflict. But when you're having a social sit-down you're really talking about families and personal goals and other things that aren't ripe for conflict, you know. Uh, and so, in many cases, that can be very effective. Once again, it just sort of depends on the personality of your group as to whether they're willing to take the time and do those things. There is one thing I would suggest being careful about, though, and some groups actually want to turn their retreats into sort of a family event where they may say want to meet in the morning and get together with their family in the afternoon. And I typically recommend against that. The reason I do is that quite often people want to hurry through the business part, the strategic planning part of the process so they can get on to doing stuff with their families or they feel pressured to do that. And, and to me that's counterproductive to the whole process. One other thing I would mention, some groups when they think about strategic planning sort of say, well, maybe what we can do is instead of devoting a, a weekend day or, or, or a full day to the process, why don't we meet for a couple of hours in the evening over several weeks to develop a plan? And that can work. I mean, if that's the only thing you can do, that's, that's better than nothing. But that can be problematic in that if you meet, say, three times over three weeks in the evening for a couple of hours, Number one, different people might attend different meetings, and therefore the, the plan can shift over here and then shift over there, depending on who actually attend. And then secondly, you spend so much time starting each meeting with a recap of what you did last meeting and sort of getting ready for the next meeting, you just lose continuity. So in my experience, it's better to try to dedicate a full day, day and a half, two days, whatever you can do, but a, a full period of time to the planning process than it is to try to carve out time on a weeknight after everybody's worked a long day and are tired and really just want to go home to to, to do to try to attempt to do fresh thinking about the long-range future of their practice.
0: Well, let's assume that you have a successful retreat or if you don't go the retreat route, you have successful strategic meetings in the office. Everyone's agreed upon them then what are the main obstacles in applying those to the practice and getting them to stick? Okay. One of, one of the things I've found over the years is that many medical groups call,
1: suffer from what I call the, the dirty little secret. And what the dirty little secret is, is that in an individual physician's mind, they, they think like this. If I didn't vote for something or I don't agree with something, I don't have to do it. Once again, if I didn't vote for it, or I didn't, I don't agree with it. I don't have to do it. And of course, what happens then is, is that you never know when you quote unquote made a decision whether it's really going to going to happen or not. People, people leave the room and do whatever they want to do because even people that voted for a new initiative leave the room and do exactly the opposite. I remember that hearing about that happening, and I, I used to wonder why. And I, I realized it has to do with physicians being conflict avoiders. It, it, you know, it, we've actually there's a there's a survey instrument you can use. It's kind of like Myers Briggs, many people are familiar with, where you, you sort of take this test, and the test tells you what your your normal way of dealing with conflict is. And there are several different options, but one of them is conflict avoider. And every time we, we've able been able to get some groups to to take this as part of their work, every time we have groups take this, 80% of the doctors end up being conflict avoiders. And if you think about it, you know, if you talk to your doctors and say, hey, we're going to go to a meeting, there's going to be a lot of conflict, who's with me? Most of the doctors say, oh, I don't want to do that. But if you will, you know, but most of them won't do that. So with doctors being conflict avoiders, what happens in the meeting is, is when they're talking about a challenging issue. You know, people don't want to speak up because they don't want to fight about it. People actually will even vote for it because they're conflict avoiders. They don't want to fight about it. And then they leave the room and do whatever it is they want want to do. And they do that because nobody will challenge them because they're conflict avoiders too. So it's sort of a conspiracy. I mean it it sounds kind of crazy, but that's really the way things work. So almost every retreat that I – work with. I tell the physicians, you know, I'm facilitating this to get to the point where you've made a decision. So I need to know when you've really made a decision. And then I ask them three questions about decisions. The first question is, is, you know, as a group, how do you make decisions? And usually after some discussion, it basically comes around to we talk about it for a while and then we vote. My second question to them is, is what's expected of a physician once a decision has been made? And usually they'll say, well, they should do it. They should adhere to it. They should support it. They should not sabotage it. They, They should, you know, adhere to the decision. Everybody kind of shakes their head. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then I ask them the third question, which is what happens if you still don't like the decision? What are your choices? And really there are only three. And the first one is, is do it anyway, because that's group practice. It's kind of like being married. You don't You know, you don't get nobody gets their way all the time. So sometimes you do things you might not necessarily want to do, but that's part of being a group practice. The second is is that you change. You try to get it changed. You try to get the decision changed in the appropriate forum. You know, go back to the board and talk about it, but not not go complain to hospital administration or your staff about what a bunch of idiots the rest of the doctors are for doing this sort of thing. But you keep doing it until you get it changed. And the third is is that you self-select yourself out of the group. In other words, you commit that you won't stay in the group if you can't adhere to group agreements. And so, what you're saying is, is, is now we've got a decision-making process in general, we've got what is expected, and people have actually committed to each other that they'll he- adhere to group decisions. In fact, I still remember one of the first retreats I ever did, one of the physicians, after we went through this process, He kind of raises his hand and he says, so let me get this straight. He said, today we're going to make decisions about what we're going to do. And I said, yes, you are. That's why you're here. And then he said, and we're really going to do those things. And I said, well, you've just committed to doing that. And he said, well, gosh, I guess I'm going to have to pay a lot more attention at this retreat than I ever had before. And the reason he said that was that it was, it was very enlightening to me and everybody else was before you know they might do the stuff they decided or not so so getting people to actually implement their decisions to me is having that discussion having those three questions answered how do we make decisions what's expected of each physician when a decision has been made what are your options if you don't Um, you know, if you you still don't like the decision, having that discussion at the very beginning of the retreat so that, you know, when you get a decision, you know, it it increases the chances of it being implemented dramatically, dramatically. Now, I'm realistic and and they are too. Most groups know that somebody maybe won't follow through and and meet their, you know, and, and actually do what they commit to do. And so, of course, you need some system by which to deal with people that that don't adhere to their agreements, but at least you can challenge those people now. You can say, Dr. X, you committed at this meeting to accept and adopt group decisions, and you're not doing that. Can you explain to us why you're not meeting to what you, meeting what you committed to? It gives you, a, it gives you a tool then to be able to actually confront people and say, you know, it's not what I think versus what you think, it's what you agreed to do versus what you're doing. Why is there a difference in the whole process?
0: All right. Well, Will, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us today. Enjoy being here. Uh, Love to do it again sometime. Thanks again for Will Latham for joining the podcast today. If you're interested in learning more on strategic planning, join us at MGMA's annual conference October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Registration opens Tuesday, June 11th. Go to mgma.com slash big easy for more information. Thanks again for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics, MGMA Analytics, today.